Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. The center of innovation is here. And, you know, this is part of the message of Project Cashmere, of this whole podcast, that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I think Paulina those people who are really, they do extremely well with very limited resources and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity, and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, good night, Project Kazimierz listener and Facebook Live viewers. We've got a very interesting guest on the show today, David Troy, who I've met through the TEDx network, who's one of the rare people I've met in my life who's had the privilege and honor of giving a TED talk. Rather, Dave, than me introducing you in a ham-fisted way, why don't you go ahead and do the honors in the way you would if you bumped into a total stranger and wanted to keep it under a minute or two? <laughs> yeah, so uh, my name is Dave Troy, and I am an entrepreneur uh, based in Baltimore, Maryland, USA. Um, I am uh, very interested in data and data visualization, also uh, politics, accountability in politics, and how do we use data to uh, kind of improve our understanding of uh, civil society and of policy and things like that. So, um, yeah, I've you know, been an entrepreneur since I was a teenager, started with a computer sales business uh, in the 80s and then morphed into selling uh, Internet services and web hosting in the 90s, sold that business in the early 2000s uh, and then uh, spent a few years kind of traveling the world, doing some different things uh, in voice over IP and the like, um, and then uh, got involved with Twitter in the very early months of Twitter and did a data visualization project called Twitter Vision, which was basically doing a geographic visualization of all of the traffic on Twitter um, at that time, which wasn't very much, but that project got a lot of attention and ended up in the Museum of Modern Art. Um, that kind of fueled my desire to kind of get back into doing uh, you know, new entrepreneurial projects. And so I started a company called 410 Labs uh, with a co-founder in 2010. And we are focused on making tools for email at the moment. So we have a web-based product called Maelstrom and then uh, a iOS product called Chuck, um, both of which help you process your email a lot more efficiently um, and are getting a decent amount of traction. And... Um, Alongside that, I've also, you know, been continuing my interest in social media data visualization. I did a TED Talk, as uh, Richard said, uh, in 2014 at TED Global, which got a lot of attention and has, I think, 1.3 some million views. Um, and so I've traveled around the world talking about those topics, and that in turn has got me plugged into what's what's been happening with um, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. Um, and that whole saga. So I was in on that pretty early and started, you know, digging into that and researching it. So I've been working with journalists and, uh, you know, various kinds of researchers from a lot of different outlets on trying to understand that whole situation. And um, yeah, so that pretty much brings us up to 2019 um, and uh, 
during that whole time, or I guess sorry, from 2009 to 2019, I've been uh, you know the curator and producer of uh, TEDx Mid Atlantic in Washington D.C. Um, along with a co-curator and a team of amazing volunteers. Um, so that's you know certainly between all of these things, I have been very busy. So yes, yeah, I certainly got the impression you're a busy person. And for those wanting links, I'm going to be posting both in the show notes if you're listening to the audio edition or on the Project Kashmir's web webpage, but for now on the Facebook um, live stream, I'll be posting links into the various things that um, David's talking about in his business and so on. And, and so um, I, I read recently on your Facebook page, you, were, you were, made some fairly trenchant comments about the leadership skills of the, the founder of Twitter, uh, Jack. Dorsey, um, and who was on the stage of TEDx, and for the uh, we we had a TEDx Cashmere's uh, live just last Saturday where we showed uh, Carol uh, Codwellers. Um, I I wouldn't exactly say pioneering talk, but important talk about about Facebook and the responsibility of the of the leaders of the the what she called the I think the gods of tech, the leaders yeah. of Silicon Valley, and. Um, but you spotted this earlier, and rather, and because this is such an important and hot topic, um, your your TED talk was about social connections in particular cities, and your TEDx Oxford talk uh, was, you said, well, I think was one of the first public places where someone drew attention to Cambridge yeah. Analytica. Um, but could you take us back to the beginning of that idea and that awareness? You know, when was it that you spotted something that you felt other people hadn't spotted, or if they had spotted? They hadn't started talking about in the in the in the space of social social media, political mapping, interest mapping, and so on. Sure. So um, I started getting involved with visualizing, you know, this traffic on Twitter geographically in like 2007. And geographic is interesting because you get to see, you know, sort of what cities things are happening in and whatnot. But I realized that I was really more interested in something deeper than that. I didn't quite know what it was I was after or what I, how I was trying to articulate it. But what I was really interested in, it turns out, was the social connections that form between people. So if you have 100,000 people and you say, okay, make friends and document who your friends are, that turns out to kind of have um, kind of repeatable particular uh, processes so that you, you end up with, you know, a set of links uh, between people that are, you know, you would think like in an ideal world, if you had a room full of 10 people that uh, all of them would be friends with each other. And so you'd end up with 10 friends and then there's a formula N times N minus one over two. So there would be 90. So you'd have 45 friendships between 10 people because you can't be friends with yourself. You could be friends with everybody else though. So if you take that at scale, like 100,000 people, if you try to have, you know, everybody be friends with everybody but themselves, um, you know, that would be the sort of ideal social arrangement, but that's never what happens. You, people group into smaller subgroups for whatever reason. So you end up with the people that like sports over here and the people that like art over here and the people that like politics over here. And so um, I, I realized that was the phenomenon that I was interested in at scale. And so I started looking at that on Twitter uh, for cities and basically saying, how does a city organize itself into areas of interest. And is that similar in different cities or how is it how is it the same, how is it different? And I realized in looking at that, that there was a tremendous amount of power to um, affect good, you know, to like make the world a better place and to say, oh, you know what, you artists that don't like 
you know, sports, you should maybe talk to these particular sports people because maybe there's something that you could figure out to do together that would be cool. And, you know, you realize there's this opportunity for building connections. And what a lot of people, what, what the Cambridge Analytica type folks did was looked at that and said, oh, here's a tremendous way to manipulate people and to divide people and to create, uh, you know, tension around certain topics and whatever. And so Cambridge Analytica in combination with, you know, Russia's internet research agency and various other people have figured out ways to weaponize that data when I was kind of looking at it as a, as a way to do good. And I think I was naive to think that it was this sort of thing would be only a force for good. Obviously, it could be a force for evil. It just didn't necessarily occur to me that anybody would really take that uh, approach that seriously and that quickly. So, um, so yeah, you know, I ended up meeting Jack Dorsey back in like 2007 as a result of, of this work and got to talk with him some about ideas for rolling out. At the time, there was no location attribute in Twitter. So we talked about ways to add that in and ultimately it did get added into, um, uh, you know, Twitter. And then, uh, you know, in, in late 2016, early 2017, I managed to connect with Carol Cadwallader around some of the research that I had done um, around, um, you know, uh, this kind of mapping. And so, um, you know, in working with Carol, you know, I traded a bunch of notes with her and I, I actually invited Carol to speak at our TEDx and the timing wasn't quite right, but we were sort of keeping it open. And then she ended up speaking at TED. So it's kind of like, I don't like to sort of say that I have special powers in this regard. I think anybody can do this, but if you are sort of tuned in enough to kind of what's happening in the world, and can get to some of it a little bit early, then you end up sort of being two years ahead of the curve or more on all kinds of stuff. And that's just kind of where I found myself is like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm having conversations that are gonna end up being big news in a couple of years because I just got in on this, on some of this stuff earlier. So anyway, that's kind of that whole story. Okay, and, and you know, obviously um, you're an entrepreneur and entrepreneurs tend to have that interesting characteristic of while being interested in ideas, feeling the need to put them into practice. And when you first started having these insights, you mentioned the sort of what I suppose you might call the social opportunity, the idea that you can make cities better places rather than manipulate people. Did you, did you explore ways of doing that? Were you involved in any projects to try to sort of integrate communities or bring people together? Um, or was it more an analytical piece for you? So I would say that's still a work in progress. Um, I, you know, one of the first things I did was to connect with someone at Facebook who um, is in charge of like, was in charge of social good and that sort of thing. And um, so I went out to Palo Alto and met with some folks at Facebook around ways to use that data, the data that they have in ways that could be done ethically to try to improve cities. And, you know, the bottom line was that they were sort of interested in it, but at the same time, like, it didn't drive their key metrics, which really is, you know, ad revenue and time on site. And I think in their mind, this was kind of a interesting side, you know, uh, topic. So turns out that the guy who was interested in social good there ended up leaving. I think they have new people in that role and I'm, you know, currently attempting to uh, connect with them. But I mean, you know, I think one of the challenges of Facebook is that their leadership has been so ham handed around, um, you know, managing privacy and managing, you know, uh, really the uh, the rights of users 
um, and also, you know, dealing with this extremely complicated regulatory situation that is going to be more than likely imposed upon them, and rightfully so. I mean, their their Q1 uh, 2019 legal bill on their you know, public stockpiling was $3 billion. <laughs> so, you know, when your legal bill for the quarter is $3 billion, you know, you know, you have a lot of uh, complicated stuff going on. And um, I just, I, I don't know whether they're going to be able to, to bring themselves around as a company to like think this way, but if they can, then I'm, more, you know, happy to try to work with them. And so I'm going to, I'm continuing in that regard. The other thing that I'm starting to look into seriously is doing an art exhibit around this kind of data visualization, but also, um, uh, you know, photographs and other things that are derived from, from the inquiry of, of that data. Um, and so um, I, I'm, I'm starting to kind of plot that now, but that's an idea that I had back five years ago, but, you know, it takes some time to kind of build up a, a strategy for how to execute it and find funding and all that. So I'm hopeful, actually, I had a meeting yesterday about that, and I'm hopeful that maybe we can get something on the books for like 2020 or 2021 um, that might explore that. But yeah, I yeah. think it's it's a perfectly viable strategy. It just takes time. Yeah. Okay. And obviously, so if the if the big social media companies wanted to engage with you positively, do you have like a hit list of of, of three things that you'd like them to start doing now to make make the potential in the networks more more socially productive? Or, or is it more like brainstorming and just going through functionality on the site and what you can switch on and off? Is it a, a scalable thing or like individual projects that you could uh, you could get people working on? Um, so I'm more interested in kind of like what goes on on the on the back end of the network than like the features of the product right at the moment. I think that the features of the product, you know, need a lot of work and, and need a lot of consideration around what the intentionality is of the design of the product. Mm -hmm. But um, what I'd be interested in is doing something like looking at um, an anonymized um, graphs of, say, like city scale data and figuring out what insights you can learn from that in an anonymized way. And then to the extent that you had a desire or a need to try to de-anonymize certain aspects of it, um, to see if there's a way to do that ethically in order to achieve a specific strategy of connecting people. One of the biggest problems in a city, say like Baltimore, where I live, is that there are a lot of people who are, you know, in little tribal cliques that don't know each other. And being able to um, you know, kind of say, okay, you know, there's, there's this many groups of people, this is the characteristics, and then being able to plot a strategy for how do you connect people and, and get people to trust each other more, that kind of thing is is a very long-term kind of project, and having that kind of data could be helpful. But I also think just looking at that kind of data at scale, you would be able to identify other potential experiments and ideas that could fall out of that. They, to Facebook's credit, just a couple of days ago, they were saying that they're planning to um, expand uh, the access for academics to get you know access to some aspects of Facebook's data. I am not an academic; I'm an entrepreneur. So you know, I've got to either find an academic person to partner with or convince them that I meet their standard. Um, and then also, I don't know, you know, until I get my hands in there, I don't know what exactly they're proposing people have access to and whether or not it's. Uh, you know, particularly useful or not. So, I, you know, again, I think you have to approach all this kind of with some cautious optimism that there's going to be some kind of an opportunity to do something good here over time, but it isn't going to happen overnight. Mostly because the companies have, you know, I think they they were a little bit 
sloppy and letting as much information as they did slip out, but it kind of showed what was possible. And since 2015, you know, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, you know, basically all the, the major social networks have clamped down on what data you can get access to. And I think that's appropriate in many ways, but I also think it's stifled, um, you know, a little bit of, of what might be possible. So. That was exactly the point I was going to make that, you know, like any new powerful tool, it can be used for positive purposes or negative purposes. And, you know, just just literally uh, this coming week, there's a, an online website to do with uh, news about Poland and English run by quite, quite established academics called Notes from Poland. And they're having a pilot meetup. And I've often because I've got a lot of community building experience in my entrepreneurship community leader role and as a TEDx organizer, I'm offering to help with that. And it would be very nice to figure out how to target their readers more accurately. And once upon a time, that would have been quite easy, but post Cambridge Analytica, for, for good reasons, that it's much harder than it used to be. So so it's a, there's a, I suppose you're trying to find a way to stop the, the baby being thrown out with the bathwater of political advertising and stuff like that. Sure, and I think just find whatever the, the compromise is to try to do something good while protecting people, you know, from from dishonest actors. Okay, well, and if there's anything you want to share with our community, there's an, I, I, I'm not quite sure what that would be, but certainly, you know, the, the TEDx uh, Kazimierz and the TEDx community here in Poland is interested in, in your work. And, you know, I think probably we can't be much more than a, a little extra distribution channel. But if you've got questions or things, we'd be, we're, we're, we're sort of on hand to give you a perspective from the other side of the world, if you like. Well, one thing I've been thinking about is, you know, after having done, um, you know, 10 years or so of that kind of TEDx cur curatorial work, um, I'm pretty good at it. You know, I've got a pretty good idea of kind of what topics are interesting to, to audiences. And, um, you know, I, I've been thinking about ways to kind of leverage that in um, ways to connect folks from like different parts of the world. So like, you know, if you had uh, people from this market, say like the Washington DC or US East Coast arena that, you know, you were interested in connecting with, um, you know, in your community, I would be potentially interested in helping you to uh, make those connections and to, you know, shape that what that pitch could look like. We could even do some kind of cooperative thing between, uh, you know, our event and your event um, and just, you know, try to somehow or another leverage the skill that, that I've developed, you know, and a lot and people like you and a lot of others have as well. But how do we make that be something that we can share not only with our own local communities, but to get it more plugged into what's happening around the world? Yeah, well, so certainly uh, well, we we love doing that sort of thing, and, and you know, whether it's at the TEDx the TEDx uh, uh, level, because I, I one of the uh, beauties for me of being a TEDx. Uh, curator is what I call the superpower of giving you the right to pick up the phone, contact anyone anywhere right. and say, I, I see this thing you're working on. That's that might be might be very interesting. And um, then th this podcast also it gives me a kind of a, a kind of access to a different group of people who uh, who have ideas to share and then the, the startup community as as well. And you know, clearly there's an overlap. So I think I think you can say or we can just agree on that green light for brainstorming ideas to and fro and if any of our listeners are interested in doing something that would be make more sense to launch you know both on david's side of the atlantic and and mine 
uh, we can. I can't speak for Dave on this, but he's he's yeah. just said he's he's just said he's open. So, let, let, and I'm a great fan of pilot projects and tests. You know, the worst that can happen if you do a pilot is no one shows up, and that's that tells yeah. you something. Um, and between the two of us, we have a ridiculous network that we could also share with. So, you know, I mean, that's kind of what I'm thinking is like, how do we leverage this network better? I mean, we already do to a large extent, but how could we do even more? Yeah. And sometimes like, if you've got a very powerful thing, an extra 10 or 20% leverage out of that powerful thing goes a lot better than a breakthrough in something that's never happened before because you you scale much better. Good. Yep. Well. So that, that that's certainly very, very positive. Now, I wanted to come on to your, uh, there's two other important parts of your life that we know a bit about, but not that much about. One is the entrepreneurship and the piece, and the other is the TEDx history. But if we go to entrepreneurship first, you said you've been in, interested and active in entrepreneurship from quite a young age, which is, isn't true of all the entrepreneurs we have on the show. And I'm really interested to know, when was the first entrepreneurial moment in your life that you can remember? And, and where did that inspiration come from? Was it, um, I'm just, I, I, won't, I won't make any suggestions, I'm just going to listen. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I think if you ask my parents, they'll tell you that the first thing that I did was when we moved to our current, or to, to our home in uh, Maryland, where I had been born in California, but we moved to Maryland when I was very young. Uh, I started making paper airplanes and putting them into a trash bag and carrying them around the neighborhood and selling small ones for a nickel, medium ones for a dime, and large ones for a quarter. And the only thing was is that the uh, the paper airplanes were made out of uh, my parents' discarded mortgage paperwork, <laughs> you know, showing all their like escrow accounts and all this stuff. And so, uh, you know, I think one of our neighbors called up my mother and said, "Hey, you know, you should know that your son is out there selling uh, your your mortgage paperwork." So, um, yeah, you know, it's been kind of this way since I was very small. And now, um, you're, and, now you're, and now you're criticizing Facebook for violating other people's privacy when you, <laughs> you know, I was six, you know, like, you know, you know. so, um, you know, I think that's kind of what Mark Zuckerberg's excuse ought to be is like, look, you know, I'm young, what do you want me to do, you know, so, um, at any rate, yeah, you know, like, I, that and then, but, you know, really, I started doing tech related uh, entrepreneur stuff when I was like 12, 13, 14, and then started a company officially when I was 14. Uh, selling computers and got a storefront and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think entrepreneurship is kind of a, you know, it's it's a little bit of, a, of an inclination. I think some people do have, but I think it's a mistake to maybe say that, um, you know, you have to be born an entrepreneur. I think anybody can become an entrepreneur, but you have to have a certain kind of approach of seeing the world, which is that you have to believe that the world is something that you can shape. You have to be willing to take, I don't think huge risks, but relatively small uh, risks and, and uh, you know, try experiments that, um, you know, you're willing to kind of see what the outcome are and then just build on those experiments. So, you know, uh, my first company was, you know, selling computers. That was an okay thing to do for a while. But then after a while, it became clear that the internet was going to be a big thing. So the first thing we did was to sell computer stuff online, but then it ultimately became clear that the online pieces itself were the more interesting pieces there. So we basically sold off all the computer related hardware, inventory, software, all that stuff, and then started focusing on uh, just web hosting and internet access and built that mm -hmm. company up over the course of about nine years. Uh, started a telephone company in the process because we were able to within the context of the U.S. Telecom Act of 1996. And so iterative, you know, what's the next thing kind of process and, and using 
entrepreneurship as a tool to address the world, um, I mm -hmm. think is, is a really common, um, you know, kind of approach that people have. And so now, you know, whenever I see any kind of problem, I kind of just bring an entrepreneurial lens to solving it. It's not like I'm trying to be super business oriented or whatever. It's just kind of like, okay, well, how do you make some progress in that space without risking much? And then mm -hmm. if it turns out that there's some kind of process that can be repeated, then you sort of institutionalize something around that. And that either that's a company or a nonprofit or whatever it is. And you say, okay, now, you know, go off and do that. That's a repeatable process and keep doing that until, until you have to stop for some reason, or you, know, you want to change your strategy. And, and that's just kind of a way of seeing the world. And I think, you know, some people see the world, you know, in other ways, they think about it put in more like political ways of like, okay, well, I want to make a change. So I'm going to elect a leader or something, which is a perfectly valid and necessary thing to do, but it's a different thought process than saying, oh, okay, I see a problem. I'm going to approach this entrepreneurially. Okay. Um, and you can just mix the two, but they're two different things. You know? Going back to like six-year-old um, Dave, uh, obviously, you know, you had it early and um, there's two questions. One is what happened, where did, when did you figure out that getting good at technical skills, making computers or doing technical things was going to be a good entrepreneurial step or was that more following hobbies and general interests? And also just at the age of six and seven, um, did you do anything after that? Was it like you were doing things every year from shoveling snow to cleaning people's cars to lemonade stands and like a whole blizzard of things? And, and, you, and the why? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I did all that stuff. Yeah. And, and what was the why? Because, like, obviously, it, not everyone does this, and some people do. And I, I did some things like that, particularly retailing, retailing sweets, at very high margins in my in my primary <laughs> school for kids who weren't allowed off the premises because they were they they lived there, and so I was kind of black marketeer, I suppose, in a very sure. limited limited space, but. Um, where did, why were you doing that? Were you financially driven? Did, did you like, did you have things you wanted to save up for, or was it more just like, this seemed like a good idea? Yeah, can you, can you unpick your early motivations? I mean, I think my parents were always trying to kind of, you know, impress upon me, you know, how money works and, and that, you know, you do need to save up for things and stuff like that. So I think, you know, I at least had some notion that, uh, you know, like, I think I saved up once to like buy a bicycle, you know, something like that. Um, and so, you know, I had an idea of kind of what the value of money was. And, and even though some of the entrepreneurial, you know, enterprises were not exactly, um, you know, I would call like big business, you know, like the lemonade stand or whatever, where like, you know, your, your main supplier is your mom and your, your product costs are fairly low, you know, <laughs> it's, um, but it's still, it taught you that, you know, you can get out there and make something out of nothing. And that was kind of cool. And so, you know, with respect to that, I think it was just kind of, I just, you know, felt a, a need to like occupy myself with something productive, I suppose. Um, and then uh, beyond that, um, you know, with regards to the tech related stuff, my dad uh, is an electrical engineer by training. And so was very interested in computers, at a, you know, as they were coming out. And so, you know, I'm 47, which meant that I was eight years old in 1979 which is kind of when, you know, mo most of the, the microcomputer boom was happening with respect to the 6502 and the Z80 based machines. So I got involved with all that stuff. And, you know, so we had multiple different kinds of computers at home, ranging from a Sinclair, you know, ZX80 to a CPM machine. I later got involved in the Atari computers, like the, you know, 800 and the 6502 based stuff. So, you know, like I became a bit 
fluent in all of those different paradigms and you know could write programs in basic or in 6502 assembly language you know i mean like there was just a lot of stuff that i got exposed to so um you know i think that that was a really special time for i think kids our age because you know you you really were kind of getting a front row seat at the birth of, of an entirely new industry and so you know that was just kind of what i knew how to do and so you know being involved in that world and being steeped in the computer magazines of the day and going to the computer stores and all that kind of stuff um, gave me an opportunity to kind of really understand that industry as it was blooming and so yeah you know i wanted to be a part of it in some way whether it was you know as a retailer or as a creator of things or whatever it was and so i just kept getting kind of further and further into it until you know i kind of fully became part of, of of the industry and um I mean, I think that's still something I'm doing, and I think it's kind of a, a thing you're never done with. You know, you're always kind of taking this to the next step. So. Yeah, well, I'm I'm six years old. I've just had a birthday. I'm six years older than you, but it's certainly one of the things that motivated me and motivates me to be active in promoting uh, different programs to support youth entrepreneurship is that there was absolutely nothing like this going on when I was a a boy growing up in Oxford, and I had a ZX81, the old Sinclair. I mean, the Sinclair yeah. Spectrum, but I remember going to Oxford County Library and looking for a book on how to program, and there wasn't one. And like, had yeah. the be, and this was in Oxford, which should be like should is a dangerous yeah. word. Uh, and I'm, I'm a little surprised to, you didn't find more, you know. Well, I mean, but it's interesting that just you know, I, I I don't live in a sort of regrets mindset because you know you were alive now and you can always you, we've yeah. all got lots, you lots can of program the ZX81 now, you know. I, or I could learn <laughs> I, if I if I, there's plenty of ways to learn now. But it is but it's interesting how you know in you know at that time uh, the, one of the biggest differences is if someone's interested in something now, there's really no excuse or barrier. To them finding out about it right now right. they could switch off this podcast and start, start learning start learning just like immediately which is incredibly incredibly liberating so what was was there like a moment where you had like a business breakthrough where the something started making i don't i don't know what you'd call significant amounts of money but like you were clearly starting to do a lot better than people who had a regular job and uh, was there a moment where because I remember when I started my entrepreneurial career, I, I used to say to my now ex-wife, like in six months time, I'll know if this is going to work. And my needle just kept yeah. on ratcheting up. But there was definitely a time in the early 1990s when, you know, my first business started going to six figure revenues and seven figure revenues. And, you know, I could just tell, oh, this is actually becoming a real, real business as opposed yeah, to it's, my, it's something you can't necessarily easily walk away from you know mm -hmm. i think that's one of the uh, one of the indicators is like when you can't just like leave it behind it must be doing something right you know mm -hmm. but yeah no i um uh, i started this you know computer software sales company when i was a teenager and um so i was in you know high school in the us so i was uh, 10th 11th grade and by like my 11th grade year i had a retail shop so you know with, with a lease and you know security deposit and all that kind of stuff and um so by the time that i was graduating from high school um you know the, the business was doing something around like a million dollars a year in revenue maybe more i forget right now but it was something in that ballpark and um uh it was enough that you know i basically had to say okay well you know i've, I've been accepted to go to a bunch of universities um 
probably should do that, but I would like to maintain this business in some way. How am I going to do that? So I ended up going to Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, which I could actually commute to from my shop. So basically, you know, I was trying to run a business and go to full-time undergraduate school at the same time. And, you know, it was extremely taxing, um, like to the point of like me losing my mind, basically, just because of the amount of hours per day and the, the difficulty of the coursework, which I wasn't used to because, you know, in high school, while the coursework was somewhat difficult, you know, there's a big difference between university level and, and kind of secondary school. So, um, uh, you know, it was a big shock to my system to kind of take that on. But I ended up persisting. I ended up going to school for a year and a half before I was just like, this is too much. I have to do something. So I basically focused on building up the business for about two years um, during that time and um, got married, uh, recruited my wife, my, my girlfriend, then wife, now wife, uh, to uh, work with me on the business. So we you know, grew that together. And then I eventually went back to school, it took me three more years to get my degree. So it took me seven years to get what should have been like a four-year degree. And it was kind of a long and twisting and torturous journey as well, because I didn't really know what I wanted to study. And I ended up studying a weird mix of like computer science, you know, like general science and uh, and and liberal arts. So I ended up with a, a great mix of like, you know, philosophy and, you know, poetry and architecture and like you name it. I know something about all sorts of things, you know. Which, you know, I think at the time seemed like a bad idea. Now I think it was the best possible education I could have had in terms of mm -hmm. school education, per se. And, and so you must have been like your mid-20s, like 25, 27, and you had a, a, a good medium-sized computer retail business, like probably doing two, three million dollars a year by that stage. So, yeah. you know, if you're making 10% profit, you were doing okay, but it, it wasn't going to make you into a billionaire, but you were doing a lot a lot better than normal for that stage in life, probably. Would that yeah, be correct? Yeah, and, you know, in, in the early days, I wasn't really taking much in the way of pay. And part of it was that, you know, like being living with my parents and whatnot in the very early days, uh, you know, you don't have to pay yourself very much in that context in order to survive. And your expenses are so so one of the things I tell students when I speak at university classes or high school classes is like, you know, don't be afraid to start with entrepreneurship at a young age. It's the best possible time because your expenses are never going to be lower in your life. And also, if you go, you know, get like a high paying job and you become kind of addicted to the lifestyle of, uh, you know, having a, a big paycheck and having a nice house and a nice car and all that stuff, you're never going to want to like turn that down in order to go pursue the entrepreneurial lifestyle, which at first kind of by necessity has to be a bit more ascetic. Um, it just is. And, um, you know, but it, over the long run, you know, by building up that kind of equity and wealth over time and multiple businesses, you know, I've been able to be financially secure for a very long time. And uh, that's good, you know, but at the same time, like, you know, you're always in charge of your own destiny, which is great and terrifying at the same time. So. Okay, and and so, so I mean, I don't know how much detail, but are there particular businesses which are like breakout business? I, I, I'll obviously share your your LinkedIn, and you're involved in some angel investments, and you've got this kind of investment um, program. But is there like one thing in your business career you can look back and say this this was the one that worked, or is it more like you're a portfolio person? You've got a few things that are doing okay, and there isn't like one dominant thing that is basically your your lifeblood and your your biggest business achievement. Yeah, I mean, for me, probably the biggest thing that um, that I was involved in was this internet service provider uh, company called Toadnet. And, you know, it wasn't a huge company, but I was basically the sole shareholder. 
because mm -hmm. it was funded out of bootstrapping from my previous company, which mm -hmm. I was also, you know, eventually the sole shareholder in. So, um, you know, that just meant that by the time that we finally did build it up enough to be able to sell it, and then ultimately did sell it in a transaction that was, um, you know, meaningful, uh, I benefited quite a bit from it. And so, um, you know, in my mind, that that's probably the, the main thing that, that I've done that's created the most, uh, you know, kind of value for me. But at the same time, like, you know, the, the constraints on that business were because, you know, I was the sole shareholder meant that we didn't have other capital coming in to be able to grow the business larger. Had we done that, we could have grown the business larger. Um, and so it's kind of a catch 22, uh, to some extent there. And, you know, you take the lessons you learned from that and hopefully apply it to some next things. But yeah, I mean, I've had several other businesses since then. A lot of them were just scratching like an itch of some kind that I just wanted to like experiment with and see what would happen. Um, other things are just things that are, that were instrumental in helping me get to a next thing. And so, you know, it all interplays, it all is interconnected. I, you know, and, and like, I would never. One of the things I think that that can be dangerous with entrepreneurship is to like pursue something because you think it's going to make money. Um, I think that you should pursue something because you think it's interesting or hard or worth doing and or that maybe it'll lead somewhere. Um, and so a lot of the like really, I would say most interesting things that I've done have been things that maybe haven't made any money yet um, or maybe never will but it maybe have led to an opportunity that I otherwise wouldn't have had. So, you know, I would say things like this Twitter visualization that I did never made any money, but it's, it totally changed my life in terms of like connecting me to a different class of entrepreneurs and giving me other kinds of opportunities. And, you know, likewise, you know, getting involved with Ted and TEDx, you know, certainly I haven't made any money off of that, but it has been completely transformative in terms of getting to network with people like you and, you know, others around the world. Um, and, you know, qualitatively, it has made a huge difference in my life. And so that anything that I would choose to pursue entrepreneurially from this point forward would benefit from uh, those investments in time and in, and in relationships that have occurred. So, you know, I think people should scratch what itches they have and, you know, pursue what they think is interesting. And that will eventually lead somewhere. You just need to be able to make sure that you can pay your bills uh, in the meantime. And, you know, that can be a challenge. But once you've, you know, kind of got some strategies for addressing that, then the rest is, you know, kind of take care of itself. So, mm. yeah, well, certainly, I mean, I, I certainly would wholeheartedly agree with that. And for anyone listening, thinking about why go into business, you know, having a good financial outcome is a is a measure of success. But there are plenty of ways of having a good financial outcome without starting a business. And many of them are much less risky. So but if, if there's something right. you want to do, want to do. And I, what you described, David, as the entrepreneurial mindset, where you come across a problem and you think, hmm, if that's a problem, how many other people have got that problem? Could I could I solve that problem? Would that be a profitable thing to do? That you know, is that is is that is is there a business case for working on that problem? Is a is a mindset which I know I, I part time teach courses in entrepreneurship, and one of the most challenging and rewarding things to teach is that mindset change. That it's not about being good at any one thing. It's about organizing a solution to a problem, putting putting together a team, and and so on. So I I, I suppose the is there anything you've learned in your on before we move on to TEDx Mid Atlantic and your 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 story there? Is there anything you've learned in your entrepreneurial journey that 
um, you'd like to share, like to someone listening who maybe has got a small business, they haven't made it yet, or they're thinking of starting a business one day? Um, are the things you've learned that you think are the most important things that you've got to tell them? Well, I think the biggest thing, and you'll hear this from a lot of people, I think is just sticking with it and, you know, actually pushing through to, to realize, you know, your vision. I, I do think that, you know, we sometimes um, sort of falsely praise the idea of like, you know, uh, pushing through no matter what, you know, like, and, you know, like it, eventually sometimes, you know, you do get signals from the universe that like, hey, this isn't working, you should stop, you know, like, I, I don't mean to ignore those signals. But I do think that, you know, so much of just, uh, you know, having a successful outcome is just finishing the work. And I think sometimes people, you know, want to kind of give up prematurely or, you know, uh, just get discouraged or whatever. And I think, you know, it's, it's important to just push through and kind of, you know, push past whatever the barriers and the obstacles are to like, just see things through. And again, you know, don't disregard, you know, important obstacles that, uh, you know, are really in your way. But, uh, you know, if it's just a matter of like, you know, six more months or, you know, you need to figure out some different strategy or something like that, like that's just problem solving. So don't confuse problem solving with, you know, like existential crisis. It's, and I think, you know, a lot of, one thing that I definitely learned that I think a lot of entrepreneurs go through is that you end up kind of conflating your personal life with your business existence. Um, especially like if it's your first company, you kind of get this feeling of like the company is me. Like, you know, I'm so closely associated with it that, um, you know, I, I, I feel every slight, you know, every time there's a setback, you feel it in your gut, you know, like, and you do, you're never going to totally get over that as an entrepreneur. But at the same time, like, you do need to be able to kind of say, look, I'm David Troy, I'm a person, I have these characteristics, I, you know, have my family, and no matter what happens, I, all that is there. And then, oh, by the way, there's this business that I'm involved in, and it's doing its thing, and it has its own characteristics such that if for whatever reason you have to take the business out back and shoot it, you haven't done mortal harm to your own sense of self, you know? And I think that that's a really hard thing to learn, but it's so vital. And, and some of it is just building the skills around, you know, like, when do you think about business? When do you talk about business? I, you know, I'm married to a co-founder basically. So we have really pretty strict rules about when we do and don't talk about business. Mm. And, um, so I think those kinds of, of life work kind of balance things can be very helpful in terms of not losing your shit when you're an mm -hmm. entrepreneur. And um, so, yeah, that, that's something to think about. Yeah. So, so basically summarizing one, one is persistence uh, as a key characteristic. And I know you're an angel investor and you run this angel investor organization and certainly angels are always looking for evidence of the person who wants the money has that characteristic of being persistent and being ready to fight on. And as you said, not irrespective of the fa fa facts, you don't want to charge a light brigade and yeah. sort of run into enemy machine gun fire. But on the other hand, yeah, you know, exactly. one, one, one of the things I say to people is, you know, I don't, I don't really don't, it doesn't matter what I think about your product or service, tell me what the customers think. And if they say, well, it's yeah. really, it's really hard because I don't have a product yet. If they can come back to me and say, I've spoken to 10 potential customers, here are their LinkedIn profiles, their Facebook profiles, their emails, their phone numbers. I know that that person's persistent because it's not easy to get in front of people when you don't have a product. And it, you know, right. it may not be, it's not a, 
it's not a guarantee of success, but it, it is the case that if they've talked to 10 customers who've told them that's really interesting, they'll be more motivated and I'll be more motivated. And if those 10 potential customers told them to get lost, well, let's hope that they've taken that on board and maybe they should be doing something else. And the other thing is having that sense of distance between you and your, your businesses, that you are you and your businesses are your businesses. And they are like family members, but you also are not your son. You're not your daughter. You, you care about them. They're important. <laughs> Let's say, I hope you don't take your children around the back and shoot them when, <laughs> when the <laughs> really, really. that, that, that's not a, not a, not, not an idea worth spreading. <laughs> which, no, which, no. But let, let, when, um, you know, one of the things I've noticed we've had in common is you, you're, you're active in the sort of, let's say the borderlines of politics and technology advocating your your spreading your ideas about the role of the big social media companies you're you're obviously active in the community of investors as the angel investor you're an entrepreneur but you've also taken on different TEDx's and I looked it up it's not just the one you're in now but it's um TEDx oil spill TEDx mid-atlantic TEDx Baltimore and I noticed 2009 was the first year on your TED CV when you started, which is more or less the same time as me. What what drew you into the world of TED? Because it's it's quite a big undertaking, as we discover later when yeah. after after we're in, like uh, almost unlimited amounts of emotional engagement, and uh, obviously the time has to be limited by twenty four hours a day. But it's more than a hobby, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, so I was actually traveling in China in two thousand nine, and. Um, uh, I was with a group called Geeks on a Plane, uh, which was run by 500 startups, the uh, Silicon Valley-based uh, venture uh, incubator. And um, so uh, they put on a TEDx Shanghai event as part of this group you know, that was traveling there. We, we had an opportunity to attend this relatively small, very early uh, TEDx event in, in Shanghai. And so... It was put on by uh, Richard Shu, who I think you know uh, from the community. Um, and uh, so anyway, I was really blown away by it. I thought it was really interesting and cool. And I had been aware of TED Talks, you know, on distributed via like an iPod, you know, uh, in the previous couple of years. But I hadn't realized that they had done the TEDx program yet. And I, you know, hadn't been plugged into TED really, you know, individually before that. So anyway, I saw this, I said, this is really cool. I'd love to do something like this, you know, where I live. And so um, I reached out to uh, Laura Stein um, at TED uh, pretty much right after I got back from China a few days later. And she said, oh, well, you know, that sounds great. You know, we'd love to bring you on board. You know, why don't you come attend TED Global in Oxford in three weeks or whatever? Uh, and I said, okay, cool. That sounds great. So I bought my ticket to Oxford went to TED Global and was just blown away by, you know, the community there. And, and you know, I, I don't know if you were at that at that particular event, but those couple of events that they did in Oxford were really amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, no, at I, least I, especially I, to a first timer. <laughs> yeah. Know. No, because my story was slightly different. I grew, I grew up in Oxford, so I knew I knew Oxford pretty well, but I was uh, uh, until I was sort of 18, 19. But then I went to Cambridge and other in the UK and other places and then came here to Poland. But the but the um, the first TED TED organized events I went to were TED Global in Edinburgh, which was after they went went there after Oxford. So mm -hmm. I, I right, went, yeah, I so 2011 or 12 or something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. it might have been 12, 13, or, or 11, 12. But I, again, but I had I I volunteered to help with the first edition of TEDx Krakow, where I'm I'm calling from, and um was had different roles in the team: a speaker, a sponsor, a team member. 
but then then for various reasons moved on to do a subsidy event called TEDx Kashmir, which I've been doing you know since well I started doing it in 2014, so I'm coming up to the sort of fifth anniversary of being the person responsible. And as you say, it changed. And so yes, I think your story you'd seen it online. Then obviously this geeks on a plane thing. I think in now you're not allowed to do a TEDx unless you're from the place you're doing it they, they the leader of a TEDx has to be local but possibly back then they were still figuring out their their rules or was there a was there a TEDx organizer in China who who hosted you or what exactly do you or don't you remember yeah no so the TEDx event there was actually organized by a guy that lived in Shanghai so it was okay. it was done by Richard Shu was the licensee okay um, got it got it the thing that that was unique to what we were doing was I had this idea to do TEDx Mid-Atlantic, which if you're not from this part of the world, you wouldn't necessarily know what that means. I've had people ask me, like, is it in the Azores? Like, what do you mean Mid-Atlantic, you know? And um, it basically means the Mid-Atlantic states on the United States East Coast. So like, you know, Maryland, Delaware, uh, Virginia, New Jersey, that's kind of the typical definition that people give of, of the Mid-Atlantic area. But the reason why I wanted to focus on that geography specifically was, A, it's a fairly large region with millions and millions and millions of people in it. And that's kind of a nice thing to draw from. But then B, um, there's a lot of cities in that in that uh, geography. So like Baltimore, Washington, Richmond, Philadelphia, um, that uh, are all kind of keep to themselves. You know, So like if you do an event in Washington, people from Baltimore won't come and vice versa. If you do something in Baltimore, people from Washington won't come. And we really wanted to do something that would bridge the region um, and cross fertilize between the cities. So that was why we we chose TEDx Mid-Atlantic as like the main banner. And um, so, you know, we're reluctant to give it up now because I don't think they would reissue that now um, if, if we reapplied for it. Uh, so it's kind of grandfathered in at this point and has a good reputation. So we're just kind of holding on to that and, uh, you know, continuing on with that theme. But again, if you think about it, what that's really saying is what I was talking about earlier, bridging networks. Um, you know, we wanted to, instead of creating division between these cities, we wanted to find ways to link them together. And one of the things that we did at our last event was on the actual name badges list, you know, show like a little, what looks like a little sticker showing what state you're from. And we had people from Maryland, you know, Delaware, Virginia, DC, New Jersey, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, all over the place. And that's that's kind of the magic of it is being able to, to convene across those boundaries. So, Absolutely. Well, there's one, one project that I, I don't know if you saw at the, the TED, and I think it's in the last quarter of last year, I think it may have been TED Women, they showed the video from the campaign to end loneliness in the UK called Be More Us, showing little kids talking to old people who are by themselves in it was one of the TED shorts. Does that ring a bell? Do you remember that? I don't know that I've seen that one, but it sounds believable. Uh, so um, what we shared that at our event last, last uh, I think as our TEDx Women Live, we showed that TED short. And we then I've been in contact with a lady who's actually been on this podcast called Alex Alex Hoskin, who, who's got a great idea, which I've got earmarked for, for my next event with live speakers, which is called Chatty Cafes. And the idea is that it's a very, very simple idea, which is what's just so nice about it. You you sign up on a website, pay ten pounds, so like three the three coffees. Um, you get a sticker in the window saying you're a chatty cafe. You get a table stand, uh, a stand to put on the table, and that by sitting at that table, you've pre-agreed you're ready to talk to strangers. And so oh, it's cool. a sort of and it's a really simple idea. But I'm 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 probably in the final quarter of this year going to volunteer to 
to help her more actively. But we, uh, in my entrepreneurship class, in the social entrepreneurship uh, theme, we're talking about helping her with our TEDx. We're thinking of doing a TEDx adventure around that because it's such a simple way of bringing people together. So potentially, if we if we go down that road, maybe maybe you could help identify people in your region who like Absolutely. like the idea. And, yeah, and no, I, I, I'm sure our community would be interested in engaging on that. And what I what I thought at the moment they're focused on on cafes, but I I also thought that if you look at what the reason Oxford or Cambridge colleges work and uh, good companies work, there are spaces where people meet people from other departments. You know, this mm -hmm. is a that's why the kitchen is quite an important place, and a lot of uh, or the water cooler is can be an important place. And I've been wondering if there could be like a separate product for for technology centers or co-working spaces or or um, and incubators just because that kind of permission that signaling that you're ready to have a conversation is one of the most powerful um problems to solve that you know you quite a, people are a little bit shy these are micro micro things but just that that simple thing of a sign on the table could be quite powerful so given your interest in bringing people together from different different communities that could be an interesting uh, I'm not quite sure what the word is. Well, I suppose idea or project that could could help in your community. Yeah, I love it. I think it sounds like a really you know interesting little intervention. And I think again, it's these small things that you just kind of keep investing in that can I think have an outsized impact over time. But you just kind of uh, need to put yourself out there and and find a way to kind of make these things uh, work. But I, mm. I think that's a great design idea. Okay. Well, just just before we wrap up, um, I've noticed you've you've signed up to help with. Um, one of my uh, initiatives, the the pre-event, the pre-summit social event. Um, can you explain what that is for someone who's no idea what I'm talking about? Because this is something that I kind of invented, and I, I'm not quite sure it's an idea worth spreading. But I do we'll believe that. Well, well I've, I've done it before. I've done it. We'll find out. But yeah, with your involvement, it's bound to be successful. But what, what's your understanding of the pre-summit, the pre-TED summit uh, social gathering in Edinburgh on the 19th of July? Yeah, so uh, for those that don't know, uh, TED holds several conferences per year, usually two, maybe three. I guess three is pretty typical right now, uh, like TED, TED, TED Summit and TED Women, perhaps. Uh, so anyway, this, this year, they're doing TED Summit in Edinburgh uh, in July. And um, what we're going to do is just get together a bunch of different TEDx organizers from around the world. Uh, to really, you know, connect and uh, get to know each other better. I think that's really the main uh, driver. Uh, sometimes at uh, the TED conferences, it's on like how to organize TEDx events and how to curate, do all the other sponsorship and all the other kinds of tasks that go along with it. But um, this will just be a, a more straight uh, social gathering where we can, uh, you know, activate each other, get to know each other better, probably build a little bit of trust, I think would be good, um, you know, really, you know, get to exchange, uh, you know, a little bit more depth of information than we otherwise would. I believe there'll be some food, possibly some drinks involved. Uh, so that could probably help. Uh, but um, it'll be a really nice opportunity to, to get to know some people that we already know better, but more importantly, probably to meet some new people that we don't know at all yet and to uh, bring them into our networks. Because again, it's this global network of uh, TEDx folks that I, I don't know how many people you can kind of say are in that network at this point. It's probably in the at least 10,000 range, but there's probably at least, you know, a couple thousand that are like really active and certainly Richard and I are in that uh, category. So it'd be a really good opportunity to, to just get to know each other better and connect. 
Mm -hmm. And the, the wider, the, uh, so this is exactly well well described, and, and thank you. The the wider observation I had um, a few years ago before going off to events in other cities is that quite often, if, if the people programming the event haven't forecast it, a lot of people who are from out of town will show up that place the evening before, and there's this kind of waste, there's a kind of type two opportunity. There are people there who actually are going to the event primarily uh, or at least part of their motivation is to meet other participants and there's a sort of milling around uh, lack of lack of coordination which to some extent social media can solve but it's not ideal to be tweeting hey anyone going to South by Southwest who wants to meet because the benefit of pre-events is to address the needs of people who arrive in a place the day before and wider than that I've, I've also got an idea of the five or ten minutes before things start that if I'm giving a guest lecture somewhere uh, I go, I show up quite often, you get 15, 20, maybe 50, 100 people in a lecture theatre, or in a function room waiting for something to start and you the, the speaker are there, and everyone's sitting around waiting for right. things to start. And, and uh, what triggered this was quite often a lot of one of my sort of background motivations is a sort of a, a rumbling anger when people are organizing things badly. And I remember the person who invited me said, well, we're going to start a bit late. I will start a bit late for the latecomers. And I sort of saw red because I thought, well, I'm on time. These guys are on time. How dare you make us wait for the how right. dare the latecomers make us wait for those who've made it? I said, you know what? I don't think we'll start late. I think we'll start early. And I just did. I just ran an icebreaker and I said, okay, um, just starting in the front row. I'd just like you to stand up, introduce yourself, and say why why you've come to hear me talk. And that was valuable. For, and then other times I've had people introduce them to each other. But that idea that. And it, in some cases, it's been transformational. You know, the, you've discovered that people in the audience want to hear something completely different from what you right. intended to talk about, or else you're just waking people up. They were dozing away on their smartphones, and sure. suddenly, suddenly you've got a room of 400 people all having one-on-ones of why they showed up to this event, and it makes a huge amount of noise and just sort of transforms the culture. So, you know, the evening before, the day before or even the 10 minutes before it, uh, I, I feel is a kind of, there's a billions and billions of minutes being wasted every day while people are waiting for things to start. So this, 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 this could, be, could be part of That's that. Good okay, good. So we're gonna see each other. Well, in fact, we'll probably see each other on one of our organizational calls that's coming up, but um, mm -hmm. we'll see each other in Edinburgh. Is, is, is there anything else about your TED or TEDx experience that you'd like to share to someone who's maybe was like you in 2007. They, they've seen a few TED talks, they're aware they exist, but they're not engaged beyond, beyond that. What, 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 what would you say to someone who's in that situation, as I'm sure some of our listeners are? No, I would encourage people to try to get engaged with the organization of a TEDx event in their own community, just to get a little bit more of an up, up close feel of how it works. Um, you know, I think every team is is very eager to have competent people come help them. Um, so uh, you should be able to get a, a good response if you reach out in your community. And, um, you know, if you, if you don't, don't get involved in organizing, you know, attend some. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, be part of making those events better. I think, you know, it's, it's incredibly difficult work to put those events on. A lot of care and time goes into them, but they can always be made better. So find ways to actually make them better. Whatever you do, don't try to make a TEDx organizer lend their platform to you to self-promote because that is the most annoying thing that we as TEDx organizers have to face. But um, if you come at it from a place of authenticity and care, um, I think that you'll find it a very welcoming community. So I, I think that's a, a very good note to end on. The most wonderful phrase you can hear 
uh, from someone who introduces your, themselves to you as a TEDx organizer is, I'm X, how can I help you? You know, that that is, yeah, you know, uh, and rather than I want, you should do this, you should do that, and I want the other, right. it is really unwelcome, but um, I'm Absolutely. X, how can I help? And, and it can be indeed transformational. David, you've given us an hour of your time. So for, th for that, many, many thanks. If anyone wants to get in touch with you, what, what should they do? The uh, best thing to do is just email me. Um, I have a lot of email addresses, but an easy one is davetroy at gmail.com. That's very easy. I'll put that in the show notes. And um, if anyone wants to follow up on any of these things that I've mentioned, contact me. And if you've got suggestions or comments for other people on the Project Kashmir show, either you, David, or any of the listeners, I'm always good to look at new opportunities to share the ideas of interesting people. Thank you very much indeed, and goodbye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Project Kashmir, brought to you by me, your host, Richard Lucas. If you enjoyed listening, check out additional podcasts on our webpage, projectkashmir.com, or on iTunes, where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode, and also leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. We welcome feedback and suggestions of new interviewees, whether as comments on projectkashmir.com or via our page on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Adam Zuber. Thank you again for listening. You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward. Interaction between the university and the business high-tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but it's about new individuals, it's about, you know, um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other, sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other. But the reality is that you want to have as many as possible, because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here, and in this connected world, we don't need everyone here. But, but the, the, you know, the artists and the designers, the creatives, they're very much part of what we what we've got and what we need so if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you're looking for a place where your, your your creative juices will run then 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 this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself and I think you can make history in Poland I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now not just from a you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community, and and making it wealthy not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger.